0: Hello, oh, hello. I am your host, Dorotia Barna, and you're listening to the Mind Society Speaker Series, where we invite professors, researchers, and graduate students specializing in psychology to share and discuss their unique research questions, most recent studies, along with their fascinating findings. Coming from some of the top universities throughout the world, these experts will share what they've been working on in their labs and illuminate their discoveries so that we can use this information as sources of knowledge to elevate the quality of our lives and the way we engage with and interpret others. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, today's guest is Dr. Daniel Casasanto who received his Ph.D. in Cognitive Science from MIT and is currently on the faculty at Cornell. He has spent almost two decades exploring how language, culture, and bodily experiences influence the way people think, feel, and make decisions. By exploring how people with different experiences think differently, we can better understand universal processes by which people turn concrete interactions with their environment into abstract thoughts. He shares his insight into how language affects our perception and relativity of time, how our right or left-handedness affects our subconscious understanding of what is good, and how these same hand tendencies affect our approach avoidance behavior. My conversation with Dr. Casasanto is up next. Welcome, Dr. Casasanto. I really appreciate you taking the time to meet with us today. I'm really interested in in seeing where this conversation goes. As I mentioned to you, we were just having a quick chat just now that I I watched your TED talk and it was fascinating. So if, if anyone wants to Google this, it's the myth of the universal mind. Take a look at it. But we'll be touching on that hopefully at some point throughout this conversation, of course, going into your studies. But first off, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I wanted to first relay a quote from your Cornell University website, and it is, what you research is how linguistic, cultural, and bodily experiences influence the ways people think, feel, learn, and make decisions on multiple timescales. I mean, that is so succinctly put, but it's so broad. I mean, I don't even know where to begin. I'd love to have you on for five hours and discuss all that. But let's go ahead and just dive in as far as what you've been working on these past few years. What kind of studies you've been doing, and let's just hear about what's been going on.
1: Sure, thank you. The questions that we that we work on in my lab, uh, like most questions in, in science, uh, make the most sense if you know what questions they're in conversation with and what 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 ideas they're in response to. And uh, the the idea that they're in response to is one that you've just mentioned, and that is the idea that most of what's interesting and important about the human mind is universal and probably innate, uh, that there is a universal human mind and our job as scientists is to discover the workings of that mind. And that's very much the perspective that that I was was led to adopt as a graduate student. And uh, it was in trying to maintain uh, and build upon that perspective that my own research really got started because My data told me that I was wrong in those assumptions at just about every turn. So actually, as a scientist, that's a very exciting place to be, to be profoundly wrong and and have your data convince you securely uh, that you are in fact wrong is is a great starting point. So one of the places where I was profoundly wrong was in the assumption that despite the tremendous diversity of human languages, there are 7,000 human languages, uh, and they're mostly mutually incomprehensible, and some of them developed uh, in far corners of the earth, completely independent of one another, and they have different kinds of structures and different kinds of vocabulary. And despite this tremendous diversity, that speakers of all languages use the same neural and mental machinery, and that the thoughts that get clothed in language are all the same underneath. And that was a a dominant view for for decades in linguistics and anthropology and psychology. Mm -hmm. And it was actually uh, somewhat dangerous to challenge it. Well, my data, starting when I was a graduate student, challenged it, uh, told me that, in fact, it is often the case that people who talk differently think differently in corresponding ways and that language profoundly shapes the way we think. So that was really the beginning of my heretical journey into exploring how different kinds of physical and social experiences shape our brains and minds.
0: Wow, that is incredible. So let's go ahead and talk a little bit about what sort of studies that you've done. I don't know if you want to mention this one study where you found out that you were completely wrong, but I'd love to kind of hear that process as far as what happened.
1: Oh, sure. I've been wrong lots of times. <laughs> uh, let, let me share one that's, that's not about language. Uh, it's a story that started... Uh, from, from exploring patterns in language and uh, ways of thinking that, that are reflected in language and led away from language into other aspects of our non-linguistic uh, enculturation. Uh, if you, uh, much, of, much of what uh, has occupied my time over the past couple of decades is thinking about time and not time in the world, not physical time. Uh, that's, I leave to the physicists, but time in the mind. Uh, how, do, how do humans... Understand and uh, and process time. Language gives us some pretty good clues. The the way we talk about time has been taken as an index of how we think about it. And how do we talk about time? Well, in English, it's it's pretty clear that we talk about uh, the future as if it's in front of us, right? We're looking forward to the future and the past as if it's behind us, right? The past uh, way back in the past. The past is behind our bodies. And this is, this is a, a pattern that's very clear in English and many other languages. And linguists and psychologists made up a story for why this might be so. We talk that way uh, presumably because we think that way. And we think that way because of the kinds of bodies that we have and the way we move through the world. So think about as we, because the front, the front of our bodies is the business end, right? Uh, our sensory organs, our, our hands, our feet are all oriented toward the front. As a result, when we move along spatial paths, We move forward most of the time. We don't walk backwards or sideways like a crab. And so as we move forward along a spatial path, things and and experiences that lie ahead of us in the future also lie literally ahead of us along this spatial path. They're in front of us in space. Things that lie behind us in in the past in time lie literally behind us in space as well. So our experience of moving along spatial paths with the kinds of forward-oriented bodies that we have Uh, gives us this experiential correlation between front-back-in-space and front-back-in-time. That's why we think about it that way, and that's why we talk about it that way. Okay, this is all a very good, coherent story, and there's there's a lot of truth to it, but there's also a great deal that's wrong with it. And one of the things that's wrong with it is that that is not the only way we think about time at all. Time is a, a complex of lots of different capacities, but even if we just stick with uh, this one aspect of time, of uh, futureness versus pastness, this front-back mapping of time with the future ahead of us and the past behind us is only one of the ways that we use space to conceptualize time. So I, I uh, stumbled upon really, really clear evidence that that there's another way, looking at people's spontaneous gestures. So I'm a professor, so I'm, I'm consciously gesturing all the time. Now in the Zoom age, I'm, I'm putting my hands up here in, in the, the, the camera window. And Often I will gesture forward and backward for time because it's a of what I'm talking about. When people are gesturing less consciously, right, just uh, during normal speech, not on camera, not in front of a the classroom, they tend not to gesture that way at all. What we find in video after video of subjects spontaneously speaking in the lab is that they will gesture, English speakers, will gesture leftward for earlier times and rightward for later times. Now, this is crazy with respect to both prongs of the story that I just told you, right? The the story starts with uh, the way we move through the world, right? We've already established that we don't generally move through the world sideways like a crab uh, (laughs) and certainly not rightward uh, exclusively, right? So it's probably not about the the explanation for this left-right mental timeline can't be the way we walk. Well, it also can't be the way we talk because there are no known spoken languages that have conventional metaphors suggesting that left is earlier and right is later. You you can say Monday comes before Tuesday, but you can't say Monday comes to the left of Tuesday. So where does this come from? Well, uh, direct bodily experience of the world is one source of experience that shapes our minds and, and influences the way we talk. Language is another source of experience that shapes our minds. But there, there are others, and some aspects of our non-linguistic cultural experience, they're, they're not part of the natural world, they're not built into our bodies, and they're not necessarily encoded in language, but we interact with other cultural artifacts all the time. So where do we find time spatialized left to right? Well, one place is calendars. If you look at your wall calendar or your desk calendar, right, the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday are laid out from left to right, just the way people are gesturing. But it's... It's simpler than that. You don't have to be looking at cultural conventions that spatialize time. The, the cultural con- convention, the cultural practice of reading and writing spatializes time really consistently in a way that is different from the way we walk and the way we talk. So every, every line of text that we ever read as a Westerner, we start on the left at an earlier moment in time, and we move progressively through time and space to the right, ending up on the right at a later moment. So every line of text, it's earlier on the left, later on the right, earlier on the left, later on the right. From page to page, it's earlier on the left page, later on the right page. The act of reading and writing gives us this the same kind of experiential correlation between space and time in left-right space. Reading does that in left-right space the same way that walking does it in front-back space. Well, now we're reading and writing so much uh, that it turns out that our mental timeline is is shaped, apparently, more by this interaction with the cultural world than with language or the natural world. Wow, and we, we can we can show this in the laboratory uh, by messing with the way that you that you read and write. So we can expose Westerners to even even just about five minutes of the kind of writing system that uh, Arabic and, and Hebrew has, where of course letters words unfold from right to left, backwards of of, of English. If you expose uh, a Westerner to even a few minutes of reading mirror-reverse text, right, the same words just flipped around, well, then their eyes or their attention start on the right and move to the left, establishing this link between earlier right, later left. After about five minutes, the flow of time is reversed in our minds. Suddenly we are conceptualizing time as if it flows this way, uh, which is the the habitual way of thinking for uh, members of of, uh, right-to-left reading cultures.
0: Wow, that is so fascinating. So that was that was the
1: start of a, a journey of, of being you know a, a little bit wrong. Uh, well, it's it's pretty pretty darn wrong. The, the assumption was that uh, the the way we organize time in our minds is the way we walk through space and the way we talk about it. And actually, those were both both false uh, uh, because we were looking at the wrong axis. Wow. So in exploring this, um, I, I got wronger. Uh, wronger still, because we were replicating this this experiment that I mentioned, uh, first done in English speakers, where we watch people spontaneously gesture as they talk about the, the past and the future. And we were doing it in a population of Moroccan students, uh, Moroccan uh, speakers of, a, of an Arabic dialect called Daria. And as expected, they were gesturing backwards of the English speakers, right? They were gesturing leftward for later times and rightward for earlier times. That was what we expected. I was only moderately excited about this confirmation of what we already had, had discovered. We looked at their front-back gestures as well, just sort of as a, as a, a cross-cultural comparison condition where we didn't expect any differences, right? If, if they were going to gesture ahead, uh, excuse me, if they were going to gesture on the, the, the front-back axis... They should do it the way they walk and the way they talk. Uh, Arabic has the same kind of future as ahead, past is behind metaphors in language that English has. That's not what they were doing. What they were doing was completely backwards. They were very systematically gesturing over the shoulder or behind them back for, wait, I'm going to say it backwards, back uh, for the future and ahead for the past. Well this this was this was unexpected because that's not how they walk. So far as we know, uh, Moroccans uh, do not habitually walk backwards and that's not how they talk. We, we uh, consulted some some linguists and linguistic anthropologists quickly and made sure that their uh, spoken metaphors are very much like ours. the future is ahead. So what could it be? Well, first first you replicate right and we found that in a, another measure complementary to this gesture task, we also found that these these Moroccans were, consistently putting the future behind them and the past ahead of them in their mental model of time. So it's not about uh, uh, moving through the natural world. It's not about language. What else differs between Westerners and uh, members of this, this Moroccan Arabic speaking culture? Well, here's some things that we learned about this culture. The majority of men are named after the same ancient prophet, right? As a member of this culture, you and, and most likely everyone you know are, are probably uh, engaged in a daily ritual of prostrating yourselves to pray, to, to enact the same ancient rituals five times a day publicly, right? This is a culture that takes the past very seriously. They focus a lot of their, compared to Western cultures, they focus a lot of their attention on ancient times and ancient practices. So here's here's the crazy idea. We, we call this the temporal focus hypothesis. Maybe we, we, we have no choice. It seems like humans have no choice but to create spatial models of time in our minds. It's how we do time. Maybe you put whichever pole of the temporal continuum, the, the future pole or the, the, the past pole, whichever pole of the temporal continuum you tend to focus your attention on, where do you put it? Well, you put the thing that you wanna focus on out here in front of your face, where if it were an object, you could look at it, right? Uh, So events in time are metaphorized mentally in our our heads as objects in space. And where do you put objects that you wanna focus your attention on? You don't put them back here behind your head, you put them up here in front of your face. So we have now tested this in dozens of cultures. And in spite of the way people talk, and in spite of the way people walk, we can strongly predict whether they are going to implicitly place the past or the future in front of their faces in front of them uh, in their mental models of time uh, as a function of how past or future focused uh, they are as, as a culture or as as individuals in that culture.
0: Right.
1: Um, So, so very, very past focused cultures, even if they say that the future is ahead, they're thinking that the past is ahead. Um, We can reveal this through tasks where we trick them into revealing their spatial models of time, They're not mean tricks. We can also cause you to flip the way time is organized in your mind from from having the the past behind you to having the past in front of you, simply by uh, bringing you into the laboratory and making you focus your attention for a few minutes uh, on on your past or on your future. If you write about things that you've done instead of things that you want to do, you're much more likely, even as a a Western college student, uh, to uh, place uh, the past in front of you. Uh, where, where you can focus on it. Expectant mothers, expectant uh, women, uh, compared to control women who are not expecting. We, we have, in, in English, this, uh, this this metaphor for being pregnant, which is expecting. Well, expecting means looking forward to something in the future, right? Expectant mothers are more likely to put the future in front of them than uh, matched control women who are not pregnant. Visitors to uh, a science and technology exam are more likely to put the, the, the future in front of them, uh, and visitors to a, a history museum more likely to put the past in front of them. This is this is uh, this is labile. This is flexible. We are as as cultures, as individuals, and as people in different, ever-changing contexts. We are changing our mental model of time much, much faster than, say, our bodies change or our language changes.
0: Right. Oh my goodness, that is so fascinating. I didn't even I didn't even know that. I didn't even realize that that was even happening in our in our minds. Yeah, we didn't either. I knew that there were definitely significant changes of perception of reality and consciousness between cultures throughout the world. But I think this is a really interesting point to make as far as the writing, as far as how that goes, how we perceive time. As far as these differences in perceptions, temporally speaking, what are other differences that were byproducts of that from perhaps that population that you mentioned of of Moroccans? Did you see any sort of differences between that population and let's say Westerners or perhaps Americans?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So this is something that we're just starting to explore now that we know about uh, this phenomenon of changing the way you spatialize time as a function of your temporal focus. Uh, what what uh, beyond just your mental models of time, uh, does this affect your decision making? Does it, does it link to other aspects of, of your life? Well, One link that that seems clear is that this aspect of of culture, of how past or future focused you tend to be, members of your culture tend to be, is correlated with religious practices. And it's not necessarily how religious you are, although that matters. It's it's more about what particular religion you practice and whether it is, uh, for example, an afterlife-focused religion, uh, that some religions focus you more on the present moment, some focus you on reverence for traditions and ancestry. Some focus you on the, the, the future afterlife. And so re- religiosity is strongly linked to this, this culturally variable characteristic of temporal focus. Other, other consequences of, of being past or future focused, there are lots of things that, that social psychologists have discovered about reasoning and time. So, for example, uh, discounting. Uh, if something is... Uh, going to, to happen a long time from now, its value seems less intense to us than than, than something that, that is going to happen more immediately. Does this kind of discounting behavior vary as a function of your personal or, or culture-based uh, temporal focus? We don't know. We've just started to explore beyond uh, mapping out these, these spatial models in our minds.
0: Wow. That's incredible. So that's kind of where your research is going to be taking off from, or at least heading in that direction?
1: Yeah, that's one branch that's been very exciting. It's been a, a fun journey from uh, being clearly wrong and very confused to having a new theory of how time is organized in our minds and enshrined by our cultures.
0: That's amazing. Um, but I wanted to touch on the other two areas that you focused on. You mentioned that there was a bit of a trifecta that you were
1: um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, of trying to trying to discover and explore and come up with new theories. And I just wanted to at least respect those two other areas and give them some airtime. I would love to hear a brief discussion as far as what you've been working on there and then where you're going, because I think it'd be fascinating.
1: Yeah, well, thank you. Um, So one thing that, that we discovered a few years ago, also sort of by accident, was that there are bodily characteristics that vary systematically between individuals that shape our brains and minds in ways that we just didn't imagine a few years ago. I was trying to understand the the basis for some of these spatial mappings of abstract concepts in our mind, and uh, was thinking about these expressions in language that link good with with rightward space. So we have. Uh, expressions in English like the right answer uh, and idioms like to left. La- the obviously the right answer is good right? it's the correct answer to left feet is bad right it means clumsy this is true in other cultures so so linkish left leftish in uh in German means clumsy or awkward that there the, the right is associated with the good and the lawful and the left with the, the clumsier or, or the evil across Every culture that we know of that has words and concepts for left and right, that's, that's not every culture, but it's lots of them. Why is that? What, what, and what is this telling us about how abstract ideas like goodness and badness get organized spatially in our, in our minds? Well, here's a, here's an idea. This, this was just an idea a few years ago and, and now it's lots and lots of studies. Maybe right is good across languages and cultures because most people are right-handed. Okay, well that's the start of an idea. Why would that matter? Well, social psychologists, starting 50 years ago, started to establish a very strong link between positivity, good feelings, good good evaluations, and fluency. Fluency is the subjective feeling of ease. Uh, So if you can do something and it feels easy to you, that's a fluent sensation. If it feels difficult to you, that's that's disfluent. So uh, all else being equal, we like things better that we can interact with more fluently through perception or through motor action. Uh, One social psychologist uh, suggested that that beauty is in the perceptual fluency of the beholder, right? Well, there's probably more to beauty than that, uh, but fluency is is a (laughs) a pervasive uh, factor that, that shapes our feelings and evaluations. So that's why handedness could matter and could give rise to this pattern across languages and cultures. Since, since most mm-hmm. people are right-handed and we can interact with our environment more fluently with our dominant hand on our dominant side of space, maybe we come to associate this side of space uh, with fluent actions, uh, which feel f- fluent and therefore positive to us, and the other side of space on our non-dominant side with disfluent actions that, that feel bad or negative to us. Ah. So that's just a story. How can we find out whether that's true? Well, we just need to know how people are spatializing good and bad in their minds implicitly, right? Forget about these uh, enshrined aspects of language and culture. Let's find out how left-handers think about good and bad. Let's First of all, let's find out whether people are really conceptualizing good and bad on a, on a left-right spatial continuum. And then let's find out whether lefties are doing it the same way that righties are. So this is an exciting moment in in one's scientific thinking, because usually you have lots of different possible ideas that that you generate for, let's say, I I observe something about the world or about the mind, why might it be that way? And you come up with lots of possibilities, and they all sort of point the same direction. Sometimes you get really lucky, and you are generating possibilities that point in different directions, uh, that suggest different outcomes. So... If this is true, that people do conceptualize good and bad stuff in left-right space, and Mm -hmm. it's somehow just a snowball effect in language and culture, right? For whatever reason, good started to be associated with right, and we all learn it through our linguistic and and cultural upbringing. Then everybody should think that right is good and left is bad, right? Regardless of the characteristics of their own body. Why? Because lefties have to talk and act like righties. It's a a right-handed world right? So lefties don't get to call the correct answer the left answer. They don't get to, you know, shake hands with their left hand. It would just be confusing. So if there is this link between space and positivity, it's what what emotion researchers call valence, between space and emotional valence in our minds, and it's based on linguistic and cultural conventions, then everybody's going to think right is good. Alternatively, if patterns of bodily experience, of direct motor experience, are shaping the way we organize abstract concepts in our head, then Righties should think that right is good on the basis of their fluent hand. Lefties should think that left is good on the basis of their fluent hand, in spite of everything that language and culture is telling them. So that's exciting. We can find out whether our minds are being shaped more in this case by language and culture or by direct bodily experience. The answer is direct bodily experience. It seems like language and culture do not carry any weight in this case if you uh, trick people in the, it's a, again, it's not a mean trick, but you, you induce subjects in the lab to reveal how they're spatializing good and bad stuff in their minds. Righties think that right is good. Lefties think that left is good. So you can get this through giving them a diagram task where they have to sort of make a spatial diagram of where good and bad stuff goes, which is a silly task. You can give them pairs of objects or descriptions to evaluate. So, so this is one of the one, in one of the early experiments that we did we told people you have you want to buy a bunch of stuff and you have uh, evaluated you've gone to the internet and you've jotted down descriptions of all of these various products and now it's down to the final two products you have to decide between them do you buy the car that has these characteristics or the car that has these other characteristics right and the characteristics happen to be described on the left and the right of a page just like you know lists of pros and cons and so forth that we might really make for ourselves on the other side of the same questionnaire, you're told, okay, this is important, you're the boss. You have narrowed down your, your search for job candidates to, to the final two candidates, and they're described in these two columns. Do You hire the, the person who programs in Perl and the person who programs in Python, et cetera. And of course, when you construct questionnaires like this, you counterbalance where the Python goes and where the Perl goes, so that can't be explaining the results. And perhaps frighteningly, on average, Righties want to buy the product or hire the job candidate who they see described on the right of the page more often. Lefties want to buy the product or hire the person they see described on the left. You can see this reflected in people's uh, spontaneous gestures. Uh, We we found a a big corpus of head-on recorded speech. Now in the Zoom age, this is much easier to come by. But a few years ago when we did this, we went to the archives of presidential debates so it, it just so happens that the final uh, US presidential debates of the 2004 and 2008 uh, election years included two righty candidates and two lefty candidates, and their handedness was crossed with their political affiliation. So it was, it was like the American people wanted us to do this study. <laughs> so Obama and McCain are, are lefties, uh, and Bush and Kerry are, are righties. And if you look at how they spontaneously gesture with their hands when they're talking about good and bad stuff, the righties will tend to gesture more with their their good hand when they're talking about good stuff and their their left hand when they're talking about bad stuff. It reverses for Obama and McCain. Obama, when he's talking about things he is passionate and positive about, he'll be gesturing with his left hand. When he uses his right hand, it's it's usually when he's talking about something not so good. Uh, sometimes it's his opponent.
0: I'm going to have to go back and, and look at some uh, past videos of him speaking and... <laughs> And see if I can pick up on that. that's so fascinating. That is incredible. Thank you. I don't know if you wanted to touch on the other realm that you researched on very quickly. Yeah,
1: so so maybe, well, you, you were kind enough to mention the Chicago TED Talk. Maybe we can refer people to that if they want to hear a little bit about the, the language work. But actually, this, this work on left and right and emotion uh, led to something that I want to tell people about because it's exciting theoretically. But it's also potentially impactful for uh, effective treatment of the most common psychiatric disorders, for depression and, and anxiety disorders. So it turns out there's another aspect of emotion. So valence is positivity or negativity. There's another core dimension of emotion that is a lot like valence, but they're actually separable. It's called motivation. Motivation is your tendency, your predisposition to approach or avoid physical or social situations, uh, physical or social stimuli, and it it works on different timescales. So, so as a as a, a personality trait, right, a core mm-hmm. personality trait, we are more or less approach or avoidance motivated, right? We're either a go getter or more more shy and retiring. But we can also experience more. Every every complex human emotion can be arranged along this continuum from avoidance-related like fear and disgust to approach-related like happiness and pride. So for about um, over 40 years ago now, it was sort of accidentally discovered on the basis of brain injury patients and then replicated in the Mm -hmm. neuroscience lab. It, It was discovered that two cerebral hemispheres, the left and the right hemisphere, are differently specialized for different emotions. Nobody really knew why, but this finding that positive approach-related emotions like happiness and pride have been documented to be in the left hemisphere more than the right, negative or uh, avoidance-related emotions like fear and sadness in the right hemisphere. So it's one of these patterns that just sort of gets established. It's in all of the textbook, and, but nobody ever predicted it, and it's never been explained. Well, the, the explanation may rest in how we use our hands to perform different kinds of actions. So imagine, are you a righty or a lefty?
0: I am a righty.
1: You're a righty, okay. So if I were to place a tennis ball uh, on the table in front of you and ask you to pick it up and throw it to me, which hand do you think you would use? My right. Right. Most people intuit that, of course. Uh, 90% of the time, you would pick it up with your right hand. That's getting getting the balls, getting the thing you want. That's an approach-related action. What people don't always intuit, but, but they can manifest if you put them in the right situation, is that if instead of asking you to pick up this tennis ball, if I were to pick it up and unexpectedly throw it at your face, three out of four, which I'm not doing, three out of four people in the laboratory uh, defend themselves using their non-dominant hand. So this may be no mere coincidence uh, uh, that there is a link between the hand that you use for approach-related and avoidance-related actions uh, and the hemispheres that control those hands in the majority of, of people. So almost all of these neuroscience studies were done in righties, uh, because every good cognitive neuroscientist knows you don't run lefties. They just mess up your data, right? <laughs> <laughs> Here, once again, running lefties may be the key to figuring out how emotions are organized in the brain and why they're organized that way. Wow. So, the, the left hemisphere, which has been shown in study after study to mediate approach-related emotions like happiness and pride, controls the right hand, which is used for, for performing approach-related actions. The right hemisphere, right, the, the, the avoidance hemisphere, controls the left hand, which in right-handed people is, is used for avoidance-related actions. So the mnemonic that we use for this, this differential hand use is the sword and the shield, right, in days of yore, you use your sword for performing approach actions. So, so approach doesn't have to be good, right? So anger can be an approach action. Stabbing the enemy is an approach action, right? Whereas raising your shield to fend off attack, that's an avoidance action. So a right-handed swords, swords person would wield the, the sword in the, the dominant hand, uh, the right hand and the, the shield in the left hand, vice versa for lefties. If So, so maybe the, the theory is this. We call this the, the sword and shield hypothesis. Maybe what it means to be in an approach-related or an avoidance-related state is to have neural systems partially prepared, partially activated, that would enable you to perform approach-related actions or avoidance-related actions. That's 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 uh, so, so. We're we're building these abstract emotions on these concrete motor plans, right? If that's true, then there's a very clear prediction from this, which is that if you test strong left-handers, they will show the exact opposite hemispheric laterality for approach and avoidance emotions. We've done it, we've taken uh, old studies off the shelf that, that have been done in, in righties lots of times and compared righties to lefties, and we see a complete hemispheric reversal. This, this is the, the approach hemisphere in strong left-handers, contrary to over 200 studies suggesting that this is the, the approach hemisphere. Now, sometimes people ask, well, aren't there lots of cognitive functions that reverse hemispheres between lefties and righties? Aren't lefties just sort of mirror images of righties? And the answer is no. There is is nothing. Language gets a little bit messier in lefties, but but pretty much everybody has the same language laterality. Other aspects of cognition that, that depend on handedness only depend a little bit. This is the only cognitive function that we've ever documented that completely reverses hemispheres as a function of handedness.
0: Wow. Do you know what
1: else reverses hemispheres as a function of handedness? What? Motor control of the hands. So this, so we believe that we are building this core dimension of emotion on presumably antecedent evolutionarily or developmentally antecedent patterns of action. Now, here's why I want to tell people about this. It's not just because I'm really excited that that we have this new theory of how and why emotions are the way they are in the brain. It's that there are common, increasingly common treatments for severe depression and anxiety disorders, and sometimes not even so severe, that are predicated on what we call the textbook model, where approach emotions are in the left hemisphere and avoidance emotions in the right. What you do is you stimulate people's brains using either electricity or magnetism to try to shift the balance of activity into the approach hemisphere. Well, what we found by, by doing this, by, by randomly assigning people to have either right hemisphere or the left hemisphere stimulated, is that this, this kind of treatment only increases positive approach-related emotions in strong right-handers right? for, for whom the left hemisphere controls the, the, the sword hand. In strong left-handers, it makes you feel worse, right? You see, you see a decrease after, after neurostimulation, after stimulating their left hemisphere, you see a decrease in their report of positive approach-related emotions. If you want to make lefties feel more positive and approachy, you have to stimulate the other hemisphere. You have to stimulate the hemisphere that controls their sword hand. So it is quite possible that, and if you're somewhere in the middle, then doing this, uh, stimulating one hemisphere or the other has, has no effect. Basically, you're just zapping people's brains for no reason. Wow. So given that untold thousands of people are receiving these neural therapies for emotion, it seems important that we dig into this theory and into its, its clinical consequences. All of our work so far has been done using clinical protocols, but in healthy, normal, non-depressed subjects. What it suggests, if our findings generalize to a clinical population, which we, we don't know that yet, then it would suggest that lefties who are overrepresented among depression patients, the left-handedness is correlated with, with greater depression, lefties who get this kind of standard treatment may be getting exactly the opposite of what they need. It means that that if we're going to, this, uh, some doctors call this a precision medicine approach, if we're going to treat people Safely and effectively, we need to tailor our neural therapies to the specifics of people's bodies.
0: That's actually a really interesting point, especially with me. I'm, I'm heading in the clinical psychology direction, mm. and that is I'm gonna have. To, we'll have to talk offline about this more, but that is fascinating.
1: That and
0: that and that and that on is. that note, I think we're gonna have to end this because that I think is just dropping the mic. This has <laughs> been an excellent conversation. Thank you so much for sharing what you've been working on. And I look forward to reading and seeing what you discover in the future. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Casasanto. My pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Daniel Casasanto. Tune in a couple weeks from now for our next guest, Dr. John Mayer, where we'll be discussing emotional intelligence. If these types of conversations interest you, hit subscribe below. Thanks for listening. And until next time, stay curious.